You're listening to Seven Churches, a teaching series at Shoreline Church with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. For more content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Today, though, we're going to look at the Church of Philadelphia, the church I believe sets the best example of all the churches. I call it the exemplary church. Your heading may say, as Jen just read, the faithful church. This is the church we want to be. As we open up the text this morning, uh, I, I like an illustration that I read this week about a father and his young daughter. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, a daughter complained to her father one day about how hard things were for her. Has that ever happened to you? Daughter comes and complains, things are hard. And she said, as soon as I solve one problem, another one comes up. I'm tired of struggling, Dad. Well, her father, who is a chef, took her to the kitchen where he filled three pots with water. And he placed each of them on a high fire. Soon the pots came to a boil. In one pot, he placed carrots. In the second pot, he placed eggs. And in the last pot, he placed coffee, uh, coffee beans. He let them sit and boil without saying a word. And the daughter impatiently waited and wondered, what is dad doing again? After a while, he went over and turned off the burners and he fished out the carrots and he put them in a bowl and he pulled the eggs out and put them in a bowl. And then he poured the coffee into a cup and he turned to her and he asked, darling, what do you see? And she said, I see carrots, eggs, and coffee. Well, he brought her closer and he said, feel the carrots. And so she did, and she noted that they were soft. And then he said, take the egg and break it. And after pulling off the shell, she observed that it had become hard-boiled. And finally, he asked her to take a sip of the coffee, and she smiled as she tasted its rich flavor. It obviously wasn't my daughter. She doesn't like coffee. Well, she asked, well, what does this mean, Dad? And he explained that each of them faced the same adversity. They all faced the boiling water, but they each reacted differently. The carrot went in strong, hard, and unrelenting, but after being subjected to the heat, well, it softened, it became weak. The egg was fragile. Its thin outer shell had protected its liquid interior, but after sitting through the heat, the inside hardened. The ground coffee beans were unique, however. By being in the boiling water, they changed the water itself. And the father then asked his daughter, when adversity strikes, which one are you? Are you softened by the problems, hardened by the problems, or do you change the atmosphere that you're in? Far too many Christians discover that when adversity strikes, we're a little bit more like the carrot or like the egg. And the result is that many Christians, many churches, bring about little or no change in our culture. But fortunately, this doesn't have to be the case. In our test case, our example is the church that we're going to study today, the Church of Philadelphia. And let me be as frank as I can this morning. The Church of Philadelphia, if you're taking note, is the church we all want to be. This is the church you and I want to be. We want to strive to be this church. In fact, this church, out of all seven, is one of two that Jesus has nothing negative to say to. And not a word of criticism, not a word of correction. He doesn't look and say, I see your works, but I have this against you. Listen, because I want you to get this right now. This is your money's worth today. I want you to make sure you understand this. A church that is focused on holding fast to the word of God and is dedicated to brotherly love of the saints and is looking in anticipation of seeing God at work among them in their community is a church that will always win. Okay? Let me say that again. A church that is absolutely dedicated to holding fast to the Word of God, that believes in brotherly love of the saints, 
and is looking actively for God to work in their community, that church, in the end, is going to win. Let's think about it. When did David sin with Bathsheba? Was it when he was engaging the enemy on the front lines or when he was comfortable back at home? Likewise, the church that's not devoted to Acts 2.42, to the uh, breaking of bread and prayer and the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, well, we are not there on the front lines. We begin to get petty and we begin to argue. I like to say if we're not on the front lines, then we're arguing about the paint colors back in the barracks. And you and I, we need to get out on the front lines and serve and love one another and be a healthy church. And so we've got kind of a helpful outline uh, that we've been following with this series. So we'll put it on the screen. If you're taking note, with each of these churches, we're looking at an actual city that exists uh, in modern-day Turkey. These are Turkish cities. Uh, We also see a characteristic of Christ that refers back to chapter 1. We see Jesus in most churches giving a commendation, a thumbs up. We see him also in many of the churches giving a thumbs-down criticism. Uh, Then he gives a correction to get them back on the right path. And if they overcome, if they do that, then he's got a reward, a crown for each church. Now, let's look at verse 7 and let's see this city. Verse 7 says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, uh, Philadelphia. Uh, I want to show you a picture of Philadelphia on the screen. Here's a picture of Philadelphia. Oh, no, that's not it. That's very funny. All right, let's show the real Philadelphia. Okay, this is the Philadelphia. All right, listen. Our media guys apparently really like the Eagles. I get it. All right. Fly Eagles fly. All right, sorry. Uh, Here's Philadelphia. All right. So if you look inland, it's pretty much the furthest inland of all the churches that we've studied, that we've looked at. Uh, Situated in a uh, kind of a large, beautiful valley. Not much of a defensive city. Not because it didn't have a stronghold, but it just wasn't strategically located. It's in a valley. And so... uh, very, very prone to attack. Uh, what's interesting is that it was so far inland that the surrounding countryside, the Greeks called them barbarians. It's a Greek word that is basically taken from barbar, which means we don't understand what these guys are saying. So they just sound like they're mumbling. So then that's where the word barbarian came from. All these people that aren't Greco-Roman are around us. And so if you know what Philadelphia means, anybody know what the name Philadelphia means? Brotherly love, city of brotherly love. It was actually named after one of the Roman rulers who loved his brother so much that people said, hey, we're going to name a city after you. He just had this great love, Attalus, for his brother. And so they actually voted on more than one occasion to change the name of the city. Not that they didn't like that, but they wanted to give an emperor's name behind Philadelphia. So in other words, the city of brotherly love of this emperor. So they kept changing the name. In fact, the city of Philadelphia had so many gods and temples that it reminded many people of Athens in Greece. And so he got the name Little Athens as kind of a nickname for how you'd walk through. In fact, I think we have a picture of one of the temples. A lot of people think that this next picture is the Byzantine church. Um, We're not so sure about that, um, but the only thing left in some of the temples were these pillars. In fact, that's kind of the significant thing that you know in Philadelphia. As you travel through in Turkey, you say, oh, that city, There's pillars, right? That's the pillar city. We'll see why that's important a little bit later. But what is important now is that this city was considered a missionary city. Not a missionary city in the sense that we're used to using the term, a missionary who goes across the world to a different culture. No, this is an idea of we're going to indoctrinate the barbarians with Greco-Roman culture. In other words, 
You're from a different culture, and you want to know what Greece is like, what Rome is like. Well, come to Philadelphia, and we'll put that on display. We're going to help you learn the Greco-Roman way of life, the religion, the politics, the language, the customs. And you'd hear the message loud and clear in Philadelphia. Uh, let's look at the rest of verse 7 and see the characteristic of Christ, uh, referencing back to chapter 1. Notice it says, These things says He, that's Jesus, who is holy, He, that's Jesus, who is true. He who has the key of David, that's Jesus, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. To the Philadelphian church, he says, first, I am the one who is holy and I'm the one who is true. Okay? So you want to circle those words, holy and true. Now, we hear the word holy quite often. And, and sometimes that's in a negative context. We post something that says, oh, he's holier than thou. I got mean, holy. I didn't know I was so holy. No, I don't go to church. I'm not holy. Maybe you're here this morning, you walk in, and like, hey, those are a bunch of holy rollers. Okay, I don't know exactly what that term means. But uh, the, the true meaning of the word holy, the definition is this, to be set apart for a purpose. To be set apart for a purpose. It means to be used by God in such a way that you're distinct, you're different. Jesus alone is truly holy. But Jesus alone uh, is set apart for a specific purpose. Uh, you hold up any other religion, any other religious leader, and Jesus is going to stand out. He's going to be set apart truly for a purpose. Remember, when the angel comforted Mary with these words, we recite these around Christmas, Advent time. Luke 1 verse 35 says, The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Notice this, So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. He's known as the Holy One. Uh, do you think of Jesus as the one who is holy, who's set apart? See, Jesus is not some political idealist who received visions of heaven like Muhammad, who began Islam. Jesus was not a bored young man who dreamed up a religion in his backyard like Joseph Smith, who began Mormonism. From even before his birth, Jesus was called the Holy One, the Son of God. One more verse on this note, if you're taking note, Hebrews chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews affirms the holiness of our great high priest when he says, such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, there it is, blameless, pure, notice this, set apart from sinners. He is exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, uh, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That's important for us to know that. Jesus isn't just another high priest who intercedes for people and talks to God for them. He is God. And he offered himself as a sacrifice. And the Father looked upon that with satisfaction for his wrath. And today, by believing in Jesus and trusting in his death as punishment, for our sins, we too can be free from the wrath of God. We can be free from a destructive life of sin. We can be free to live an abundant life that God has promised to those who trust and obey him. But see, Jesus doesn't just say holy, because that, be, that would be awesome enough. But he goes on, he says, he who is holy and he who is true. There's a couple different meanings of true. But this one here uh, is the word that means genuine. Jesus is the, the real McCoy. He's the real article. He's not a counterfeit. He's not a copy. He's the original. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. 
Jesus is the truth. And that's a pretty bold statement, by the way. That's a pretty exclusive statement. I did a Facebook Live video recently talking about coexist and the different religious tolerant views of pluralism. Well, here's the thing. Jesus said very emphatically, I'm the only way to the Father. I'm the only way to heaven. That's very exclusive. But in the same way, if a fire kind of was caused here in this room and everyone screamed fire, there's only two exits. Well, actually, yes, there's three. There's that and the ones behind me. Uh, that's a very exclusive, narrow view, isn't it, Pastor? There's only three ways to exit this building. Well, if those two were blocked, there's only one way, and that's narrow, but that's also salvific. In other words, that's the way of salvation. I could be narrow, but I'm also being clear. And so Jesus exclusively uh, says this, and it's either true or false. And I want to know this morning, do you believe the message of Jesus, that he's the way, the truth, and the life? He alone is holy. He alone is true. And it's interesting, later in Revelation, when the martyrs address the Lord, they call him holy and true. He's holy and he's true. And so because Jesus is holy, he has to judge sin. But because he's true, he also has to vindicate his people who have been martyred for his namesake. So he's holy and true, but notice what else we read. He says, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and he shuts and no one opens. This is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 22. Uh, he says, I have the keys of David. Now, keys represent a couple things. First of all, they represent authority. So when I signed the lease to my house, our property manager came and gave me a key. And I was so excited I got a key. They also gave me the code. We have like a front door code. So that was kind of cool. And I got the code wrong and got locked out. But nonetheless, I had a key. And so um, the property manager still had a key, though, because they ultimately own the home. So they are the owner. I'm the renter. I'm the one who's leasing. So I have a key. They have a key. The one who holds the keys has the authority to open and shut the doors. Last week, I left the church office for lunch, and I realized I left the front door unlocked. And so I'm in the middle of eating lunch. All of a sudden, I realized, oh, my gosh, the front door was left open. And so needless to say, I ate my food very quickly, got in the car, headed over. Everything was fine. No one it was undisturbed. Um, but I did have a small heart, heart attack and uh, triple-checked the door since then. Uh, when my son Aiden was four, he always wanted to play with dad's car keys. So dad, let me have the car keys. So I said, here you go. And I let him play with the car keys. But I never let him get in the driver's seat and put the key in the ignition. Here you go, bud. Why don't you try it? Have fun with the car. Why? Because keys represent authority. He's not been trained yet. He still isn't. He's not trained yet to handle the car. He's not ready for that kind of responsibility. So keys represent authority. And here Jesus says, I hold the key to the house of David. And what I open, no one can shut. And what I shut, no one can open. The house of David, of course, is a picture of his eternal rule and reign as king of spiritual Israel. Jesus alone this morning holds the authority as Messiah, the promised one who would deliver the Jews and set up his kingdom that would never end. Elsewhere, we see Jesus also holds some other keys, the key to death and Hades, uh, meaning he alone has the authority to pronounce who receives salvation and who hasn't. You and I don't have that authority. So we'd say, yeah, that guy's going to hell. No, we don't have that authority. All right? Jesus alone has that. That's the idea of don't judge. The idea is don't condemn someone to hell. You don't have that type of authority. It doesn't mean don't discern if someone's being an idiot and a fool. Right? That's, that's discernment. And so we misquoted that verse in Matthew. Uh, the idea is that Jesus has the authority. So this morning, Jesus has authority even in our own lives. And my question to you, Shoreliner, or visitor, guest, 
Does Jesus hold the keys, so to speak, to your life, to your soul? Some people would say, well, no, I'm in the driver's seat. Or God's my co-pilot. If God's your co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat, bro. You need to get in the back seat and let Jesus drive. There's those bumper stickers out there that say that. Uh, but see, Jesus should have the authority, the keys in our life. We don't allow our sons who are under the age of 16 to drive, and neither uh, does the Lord in our own lives. So keys represent authority, but notice this is also true. Keys also represent access. See, the phrase that he uses here, the key of David, open door, they originate in Isaiah 22, when God gave Eliakim the key to the house of David, literally. And this granted Eliakim access to all of David's riches. One pastor said this, in the same way, Jesus, as the heir of David's covenant, has been given all authority to grant entrance into heaven and the new Jerusalem. You guys ever had that epic fail moment where you got locked out of your house? It's all right. You can, you can confess that. Anybody here ever gotten locked out of your house or your car? Right? Hashtag no thanks. That's not a fun one. You're just kind of standing there awkwardly and people are like, are you okay? Yeah, sorry, I locked myself out. I'm dumb. Right? It happened. I'm sorry. And I've, this happens to me a lot. There's actually, there's actually things called like, like a, this, this new invention of the tile, right? This little app and this little device if you lose your keys. Because that's me. I need one of those. I'm constantly losing my keys. Constantly getting locked out. So you're waiting for the locksmith. But what happens if the locksmith loses his key? I've had these moments where I wonder, deep spiritual thoughts. Like, what happens if the locksmith loses? Anyway, the universe would implode or something. I don't know. I think in many times in our life, we've been locked out. We've been denied access. And uh, there is one who grants us unrestricted access. When Jesus says that he holds the keys, that means whatever you need access to in this life, you're a prayer away. You can cry out to Jesus and ask and watch him open doors and work in new ways. How exciting. So does Jesus have access in your own life? Does he have authority in your life? I want you to know he has ultimate authority and he has ultimate access. Ephesians 2 tells us that we now have access, or Ephesians 3, access to the Father. By faith. So knowing that, look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, I know your works, and I've set before you, see, an open door, and no one can shut it. Would you please circle with me? Highlight, underline the word open door. I guess that's two words. Open door. In the Bible, an open door always means an opportunity for evangelism or for ministry. Uh, here are some examples I want you to jot down. Okay, they're in the Bible app event. If you're following along in the Bible app event today, uh, you can kind of follow along with those. Uh, but here they are. Acts chapter 14 is the first one. It says, on arriving there, Luke says, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them. And how, notice this, he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. There's that phrase, open door. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Because here it is. A great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. By the way, those two go together a lot. If God's opening doors, there's also going to be opposition that seems to go into that door with you. Open door, opposition. Uh, here's one from 2 Corinthians 2, 1 uh, or 12. Now when I, I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, I found that the Lord had, here it is, open a door for me. And then finally, Colossians 4, 3, Paul says, And pray for us too, that God, here it is, may open a door for our message. 
so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. An open door. Uh, it means here an evangelistic or ministry opportunity. That word opportunity is interesting. The dictionary defines opportunity this way. It's a chance. It's an occasion. It's an opening. It's a break. It's a prospect. Now notice here in Revelation that God is the one who set the door open before the church. Okay, God's the one who opens the door. No one can shut it. No one can open it. He's the one opening it. So they're not out there like, let's open doors. Let's try things. Let's try some new doors. They waited on the Lord and he opened the door for them. And sometimes when God closes doors, there's you and I trying to push the door open. Does that happen to you? In fact, some of you guys look like this. Like the door is shut. You're like, no, I'm going through that door, God. I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going for it. God's like, no, I'm going to shut that down. I'm not really in that. You're like, I'm going to marry her. He's like, no, you're not. I'm not going to marry her. Yes, I am. And you're trying to kick the door open. Jesus says no one can shut it. It's a drop kick right there. Uh, It appears, according to verse 9, that the Jewish synagogue had, uh, in many ways, closed its doors on Gentiles. Uh, They had a closed door there. But God was opening other evangelistic opportunities for the church due to their strategic location among those barbarian people groups. Open door, opportunity. Where are the open doors in your life? Charles Spurgeon had a man come to him once. I love that quote, Micah, that you shared with us this morning. Powerful. Uh, Spurgeon is so quotable. But a man came to Spurgeon uh, once and said, how can I win others to Jesus? And Spurgeon said, well, well what are you? What do you do? And the man said, well, I, I, drive, uh, the, I drive a train. I'm the engine operator on a train. And Spurgeon said, well, is the man who shovels coal on your train a Christian? And the man said, I don't know. And then Spurgeon said, go back, find out, and then start on him. I love that. Start with where you're at. God says, I have set before you an open door. It's a door no one can shut. And when I shut doors, you can't open them. So what is our job? Just rest. Be faithful. And trust and allow the Lord to use the key to open all kinds of opportunities we haven't even been able to fathom. So let's look at the commendations, the compliments that Jesus gives the Church of Philadelphia. In fact, if you're taking note, there are three. Three commendations that Jesus is going to give. And I want to spend some time on these because they're very insightful for us. He has nothing negative to say to this church, only compliments. So the first one is found in verse 8. He says, you, number one, have a little strength. I want you to jot that down. You have a little strength. The word for strength here is the Greek word dunamis. It means power. They only had a little bit of power. Uh, they weren't known for necessarily being overwhelmingly large in their, specifically in their witness. Right? They, were, they were doing the lightweights. They were taking the pin out after you go to the gym. You're behind a guy who's kind of ripped. And you kind of take the pin out from the bottom and you go up to the very top pin. Like, no one saw that. And you start doing the weights, right? And then the guy after you goes, oh, who was here? And he puts it all the way down, right? So they had a little bit of strength. They were the lightweights. But the word here, um, essentially, is used in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The idea in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said this on the screen. You will receive, there's the word power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends. Of the earth. Notice what Jesus didn't say as we leave that up here. He didn't say, you need to be my witnesses. Go out and be my witnesses. He said, you will be. Okay? After you receive the Spirit, it would be progressive and concentric. First in the place where you are, then in the surrounding areas. It's the power to be a witness. 
So they, they had the power, but it was just a little bit. They didn't have a ton of power. Sounds like a criticism, doesn't it? You have a little bit of strength. And that's what we say to kind of like, you know, our teen boys when they're not able to maybe lift or they're not able to run a full mile. Yeah, you, you have a little bit of strength. Sounds like a cut down. I love what Vance Havner says on this note. Here's what he says. He says, it's not a matter of great ability, but great dependability. Samson had great ability, but poor dependability. A little strength faithfully used means more than much strength flashily and fitfully used. Wow. You may have a little bit of strength here this morning. And it's just a little bit of witness, just a little bit of spiritual strength. But, you know, I want you to know that's commendable. You have a little. You're starting somewhere. You don't have to be a spiritual rock star this morning. You'll start where you're at. You have a little bit of strength. You're here this morning. Hey, kudos. You made it to church on Sunday. That's awesome. Let's, let's start with that. So he says you have a little bit of strength. Secondly, look what else he says. He goes on and he says, you have kept my word. Number two, you've kept my word. They may not have had much power, but listen, they had not given up on what has ultimate power, the word of God. You don't have to be the biggest church or the most, most popular Christian at school or at the job site to be an effective witness. The question is, are you, just, are you keeping his word? Are you holding fast? And many people abandon the Word of God to get more strength, more friends, more influence. But the Lord's looking for faithful men and women who are just going to hold fast, even with a little bit of strength. Keep my Word. Thirdly, notice that he says that you have not, number three, denied my name. You've not denied my name. They wouldn't compromise whom they knew. Remember, Peter denied Jesus even to a young girl. He was afraid to be found out. He wanted to warm his hands in the fires of the world. Is that you? Uh, Have you shared Christ's name to others? The Church of Philadelphia was faithful both to God's word and to his name. Now, those three things on the screen don't look very newsworthy. These aren't things that we would even waste ink on a paper to get the word out. Hey, this church has a little bit of strength. They're keeping the word. And, uh, you know, ultimately they they don't deny the name of Jesus. We're not going to have an article in Christianity Today this week like, Hey, you heard of this church in Kentucky? They have a little bit of strength, and they're keeping the word, and they're not denying the name of Jesus. These are not newsworthy moments, but they did have something every church should boast. Barnhouse says this, the church of Philadelphia is commended for keeping the word of the Lord and not denying his name. I love this. He says, success in Christian work is not to be measured by any other standard of achievement. It is not rise in ecclesiastical position. It's not the number of new buildings which have been built through a man's ministry. It's not the crowds that flock to listen to any human voice. All of these things are frequently used as yardsticks of success, but they are earthly and not heavenly measures. Can I get on a soapbox for a minute? Sadly, many churches are abandoning these three. Abandoning. Let's put those back on the screen, those three. First, rather than having a reliance upon the Lord for strength and weakness, many churches turn to business principles or worldly wisdom for power. And so they want to avoid persecution by fitting in with the mantra of the culture. Interestingly, the church we're going to study next week, Laodicea, they had no persecution. They seemed to have no problems. They were very wealthy. They were very successful. And Jesus said, you're making me sick to my stomach as a church. Now, I don't believe the church should be rivaling the world with our state-of-the-art facilities and programs. Listen, we're not here to offer the same thing as what the world offers, except in Christian packaging. 
I heard that there's YouTube, and they're like, we're going to have GodTube. I'm like, facepalm, right? Why are we trying to mimic what the world does, but just put it in Christian packaging? We don't offer something different than the world, but better, amen? Something better. Here we are trying to listen to the song of the sirens, when, like Orpheus, we simply need to play our music more beautifully than the world and drown out its alluring voice. So many churches, they look to... Uh, they look like big budget businesses. And when you unmask them a little bit, you go a little bit deeper and you pry, you don't see a lot of strength. Uh, you see a lot of their strength, rather, but you don't see a lot of Jesus. A lot of strength and the occasional honorable mention of Jesus. So that's the first thing. Second, there's a lot of churches that instead of keeping the word, they and their denomination they belong to are questioning the word of God. And they allow the, uh, listen, the authority of society to replace the authority of Scripture. The authority of society versus the authority of Scripture. And it's becoming popular today for Christian celebrities or progressive churches to reject doctrines like substitutionary atonement or the inerrancy of the Word. Uh, they even scoff at the notion that we should live our lives according to the commands of Christ. And they say, oh, you guys are old-fashioned. That's old school. We're new school. I don't want to be new school. And they'd say, oh, you still live your lives according to that crusty old book? I'd say, absolutely. Why? Uh, because, hey, your society keeps changing its mind every couple months, every couple years. But this book hasn't changed in 2,000 years. And I'm building my life upon something that's not going to change with every wind of doctrine. So they don't keep the word. They drop it for something more palatable. Can you imagine? You know, just for a minute. I know it's a little bit difficult. Can you imagine what would happen this morning? If we at Shoreline abandoned the verse-by-verse -verse teaching of the Word of God, and it said, instead I said, Hey, church, I'm going to pull you. And I'd like to know what topics you want to be taught. In fact, I'm going to give out a Snuggie, and we're all going to kind of cuddle. And then I want to hear what you guys want to be taught. And what would that look like? Honestly, like, what do you guys want to learn? You'd say, Well, I want to learn about faith and love and marriage and relationships and pizza. I mean, I don't know what we would come up with. Maybe movies. Show me some movies. Let's exegete a movie. Uh, right? And so then we do these clever little three-week series where uh, it's kind of like clever and it's got awesome hashtags and there's video clips and I'm just hilarious and, and, and it lasts a comfy 20 minutes and they build like a personality cult around me. And then we don't intrude on your Sunday plans. It's fine. You guys can leave afterwards and go hit up the restaurants. In fact, I want you to go. Uh, right now, everyone needs to go over to this particular restaurant because we have an agreement with them. So everyone go over there. I don't want to interfere. Does that feed and build the church? No. In fact, what it does is it creates a starved culture of spiritually emaciated infantile believers. I posted this on Facebook this week and uh, got some reaction, but it said this, when the church departs from healthy and hearty biblical exposition, the result is ignorant, anemic nominalism. Okay, retweet. That's what happens when we depart from the word. Now let's put that original three back up. This is the third thing. When churches, many churches flat out deny the name of Jesus in the name of religious tolerance, pluralism. We studied that two weeks ago in the Church of Thyatira. Uh, what happens is uh, the decline uh, turns up quickly. They begin embracing all creeds, all confessions, all beliefs, rather than trusting and affirming the exclusivity of the claims of Christ, which means if you believe everything, you believe nothing. And so notice verse 9. This is what Jesus goes on to say. Verse 9, he says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan... It's representing God and that it's a synagogue and it's Jewish, but these were not true Jews. He says they're of Satan. 
They say they're Jews, they're not. They lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. I'll worship you, but they're going to worship in front of you. They're going to worship me, and they're going to know that I have loved you. In the city of brotherly love, God says, I want them to know agape love. I want them to know who you have been loved by. There were Jews, apparently, that were against Christians, but because of the church's faithfulness, even the Jews would one day acknowledge that the Christians were right in their faith. Now, this is not an utter denouncement of all Jews, just so you know, but in particular, the synagogue of Philadelphia. That particular group was disconnected from the Lord. And here it's identified with Satan. The Lord says, I'm going to cause them to come and acknowledge that you Gentiles are worshiping the true God. So, where's the criticism? I, I thought there was a criticism for every church, or a correction. Well, like the church of Smyrna in chapter 2, uh, there is none. Both of these churches were facing persecution and problems and trials from without, and both of them were relying on God's strength to see them through. They weren't being hardened in their trials like the Ed. They weren't being softened away from their faith like the Karen. Uh, no, they were changing the atmosphere of their community like the coffee beans. And when a church is suffering and holding fast to the Lord and the Word, well, then He receives the glory, and there's not much to criticize. Look at this next wonderful promise in verse 10. He says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you. You've kept my command, I'm going to keep you. From what? He says, From the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, a lot of Bible scholars would look at the book of Revelation and tie this particular command or this hour to the great tribulation. Others would say, Well, this is just simply a promise to protect the church in that city from great hardship. Either way, God promises deliverance to this faithful church. Now, I just want to encourage you today. We just sang about it. And some of you lifting your hands and like, I don't know if I totally believe this. Blessed be your name in the, in, when all like the sun's shining down on me. But in the desert place, I'm not sure about that. One time we, we were playing that song, Blessed Be Your Name. And one of the lyrics got typed in wrong. And that's always kind of fun. So someone typed in the lyrics wrong. Instead of in the desert place, they typed in in the dessert place. It's like, yeah, blessed be your name in the dessert place. You're blessed. Uh, sometimes, listen, God will keep you from the hour of trial. He may allow your house to sell or your boss to stop hassling you. For all that situation to get worked out, the bill collector settles. He may deliver you from the trial by healing you, by rescuing you, by releasing you. That's what he seems to do for the Philadelphians. But listen, oftentimes God doesn't keep you from the hour of trial, but he keeps you in the hour of trial. He's not going to heal you supernaturally, but he's going to remind you in your suffering that his grace is sufficient. He may not change that person who's obstinate against the word in your life, like you prayed and thought, but he is going to give you the grace to love them through it. He may not rescue you from the problem, but he'll always show himself faithful to you in the problem. And that being the case, this next verse would have been incredibly encouraging to the church in Philly. Notice the crown they would receive in verse 11. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. That no one includes us, that we may not lose our crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. We'll see why that's important in a minute. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God 
Remember, the names kept changing in Philadelphia. I'm going to write on you a name that doesn't change. The new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I'll write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, notice back in verse 11, when Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, that does not mean soon. Okay? It means sudden. Not soon, but sudden. When Jesus comes, it will be without announcement, without warning. It will be unexpected, not immediate. And so Jesus says, hey, when I'm coming, it's going to be sudden. And so hold fast what you have, that no one can take your crown. See, they had open doors. They had a reliance on the Lord. They had faithfulness to Jesus and his word. And they needed to never let go of that, or someone may take their crown. It's not a crown received at birth, like royalty. Uh, it was a crown received at the end of a competition for victory. Uh, it wouldn't be taken in a sense like someone's going to steal it from you, but it's going to be given to someone else if you're not faithful. Now, something unique about Philadelphia was that in A.D. 17, we mentioned this in the Church of Sardis last week, uh, that there was, uh, or a few weeks ago, there was actually a massive earthquake, uh, and it destroyed Sardis and many other cities, but the aftershocks were the worst in Philadelphia. And so because of the constant fear of aftershocks, um, sometimes aftershocks can be as bad or worse than the initial earthquake. And so many people, because of that, begin to move outside of the city for fear of dying under falling buildings. And they lived in tents. And so it's interesting to me that the picture that we have modern day is a picture of a pillar. And Jesus says, listen, if you overcome, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. An unshaken foundation. When he says, you won't go out anymore, it means you don't have to run and leave the city and then come back and you're going to be settled in a peace. Uh, we're going to give you a new name that doesn't change. I think a pillar is a beautiful picture of balance and support and splendor. I think Peter told the church, the exile church in 1 Peter 2, something similar. He said, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul called Peter, James, and John pillars in the church. Do you want to be a pillar in the house of God? Then it takes faithfulness. We have to be faithful. We have to keep his words, his commands. We have to overcome and endure patiently. We need to hold on to what we have until he comes. A lot of us, when we think about being faithful and holding fast, we think that that means like dying. I need to be faithful and die for the Lord. Someone said recently, I just want to die for the Lord. I just want to go out and die for him in a blaze of glory. That would be awesome. It's easy to kind of say that in some ways. I just want to die for the Lord. But it's so much more difficult to live for him. And so I like this one quote. Uh, listen to this. And I've shared this before. I just love this quote. To be faithful. It says, to pour myself out for others... To pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. We think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us is that he sends us to the bank and has us cash in the $1,000 for quarters. We go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. And here's how we do that. He says, listen to the neighbor's kids' troubles instead of saying, get lost. Go to a committee meeting. Give a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. Usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. See, that's what being faithful is about. 
You probably wonder what happened after Philadelphia received this letter. The amazing thing is that there was an underground church there up until the 13th century. There was a booming missionary church. And some actually uh, believe uh, that the gospel was preached all the way in India because of some who were sent out from the church of Philadelphia. Their open door had not been shut. And it's still, even today, there's a gospel witness in Turkey that many people can trace back to this church of Philadelphia. Uh, there's an open door for them. But you know what? There's an open door for us this morning. There's open doors around us. And my question for us is, have you uh, gone through your open door? Have you been a witness in your Jerusalem, in your Judea, Samaria, or at your end of the earth? You might this morning feel unqualified. Like, I just have a little strength. Well, that's commendable. You have a little. We have a place to start. This church had a little strength. You might say, all I have is his word. Well, that's what this church had. You might say, all I have is the name of Jesus. I'm marked by his name. Well, that's all they had. And they were faithful and patient to endure hardship. And God promises lasting fruit. Before we close this morning, I want to share three ways for us to pursue open doors. So if you're taking note, I want to have you jot these down. Three ways to pursue open doors. The first one is this. I want to encourage you to be intentional, irrational, and irresistible. Intentional. Okay, That means you intend to do something. So when you go throughout your week, you have an intention to reach someone, uh, to love someone, to invite someone uh, to church. And so you don't just in that moment go, now what do I do? What do I say? You intentionally go into the week knowing, okay, if I talk to someone this week, here's what I'll say, and here's how I'll invite them. Secondly, irrational though. Be intentional, irrational. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean you throw logic to the wind. It means you start walking by faith. So you believe and expect God to do great things. You stop being apathetic, uh, which is only one letter away from pathetic, right? And you start having a crazy faith in an awesome God who is true. So you do things that don't make sense, like giving money away and starting ministries and opening your home for community groups and spending time at, at, at other people's homes to love on them. Okay, it's irrational and it pleases God's heart. Uh, but you're also to be irresistible. Is that how non-Christians would describe you? And that person's irresistible. They just, they love the Lord. Uh, they're a great neighbor. just want to know more about them. If we live like those three, we're going to see doors opening left and right to share the gospel. Secondly, uh, I want to encourage you to jot this down. Uh, stand firm, press on, and fail forward. Okay? Don't just look at closed doors in the past and wonder, oh, I guess, you know, and start wondering. Right? Don't question the word of God and try to do things just to produce results. Stay faithful to the word of God in Christ's name. If you make a mistake, you go, hey, I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn from that mistake. We're going to fail forward. As a church plant, we've probably made a lot of mistakes so far. But you know what? We're young, so we cut our losses early. And then we learn, and then we grow, and we're better. And so I encourage you to stand firm, press on, fail forward. Uh, thirdly, ask, seek, and knock. Jesus mentions a door, and then he also mentions knocking. And so sometimes God doesn't open the door right away. But we don't have to worry about finding the keys. He has them. He says, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. I like what Tony Evans shares about two dogs. Let me read this to you. This is great. He said, two dogs were arguing about who could open the door the easiest. In their Bow Wow language, they were going at it. It was a Great Dane and a Chihuahua. <laughs> the Great Dane said, be quiet. 
You can't do anything. You can't even reach the knob. Just stand on your hind legs and see how high you can get. The Chihuahua said, I know I can go faster than you can. That's his actual accent. But the Dane said, stand back. And then he got on his hind legs, he got his paws around the knob, and he twisted and turned, and all this energy in about five minutes, the Great Dane was actually able to open the door. And then he closed the door and began barking at the Chihuahua. Five minutes, how are you going to beat that? The door is closed, <laughs> you can't even reach the knob. What are you going to do? I'm the big dog, you're a little puppy. And the Chihuahua said, stand back. The one with the little power can do this. And so he came up to the door, he took his front paws, and just began scratching and scratching and scratching. And after only 40 seconds, the master of the house came and opened the door. And Pastor Tony Evans says, some of you out there are the big dogs. You think, I can open my own door. You can make your own way. You can do it all by yourself. But there are those of you with a little power. And you know you're unable to reach that height. Just scratch the door. Heavenly Father, let me out. Heavenly Father, make a way out of no way. Come and open the door for me. I love that. It's a great story. As we close, I want to invite the band forward and kind of meditate on these things. This idea of asking, seeking, knocking. Go ahead and close your Bibles with me. Asking, seeking, knocking, looking for the open door. Is that how Jesus lived? Think about this. Was Jesus intentional, irrational, and irresistible? Was Jesus standing firm, pressing on? What seemed like failure on the cross actually qualified him for redeeming people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Jesus asked the Father, sought the Father, he cried out to the Father. The scripture says he only did what pleased the Father. The scriptures are clear. Listen to what Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You know, if no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them, then what was Jesus doing every day? Well, I believe he was rising early, seeking the Father, asking for wisdom, for eyes that could discern. Open my eyes, Father. And then as he went about his day, Jesus was looking for people that showed any bit of spiritual interest. This could be the Father drawing them. They're showing us, they're dead in their trespasses and sins, but they're beginning to show an interest. Father's drawing them. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay attention to the people God is drawing. Oh, there's a little wee man climbing a tree to see me. You know what? Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. In the evening, the cool of the night, as men sat and taught theology on the rooftops, Nicodemus, a teacher of the Pharisees, comes and wants to ask about the kingdom. And Jesus says, you must be born again. Jesus recognized the Father's drawing him. So we begin to speak to him about the kingdom of heaven. Listen, I have a pastor's challenge for you this week. Pay attention to anyone, to everyone, who expresses any sort of spiritual interest this week. And if they do, if they ask you a question about your faith or about your church, or you hear the words, I'm disappointed, I'm discouraged, I feel lost, didn't work out the way I thought it would, I want to encourage you, stop what you're doing, change your plans, make that person the priority. God may be drawing them and presenting you with an open door. That happened to us this week. We were at a restaurant and our waitress, we could just discern there is a need. And so we were able to just ask her a simple question. How can we pray for you? And that began a discussion. I want to encourage you, 
this week to pray for the people in your life and ask God to open doors of evangelism to them. You may not know where to start because God will answer that prayer. Now what? We know you can do is just share your testimony. Ask if you can pray for them. Share a scripture with them. Invite them to community group. We're here on a Sunday morning. But listen, tell them that Jesus has changed your life and that he's wonderful and they can know him. He can change their life as well. Where's the open door in your life? Jesus is the open door. This morning, he's knocking on our hearts and he wants to open the door and come in and have a relationship with us. He's holy and true. He holds the keys of David and he holds the keys to our soul. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Do you need him today? Thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. Visit us Sundays at 10 a.m at 5100 Lakewood Ranch Boulevard. For more content or to learn more about Jesus, visit our website, thisisshoreline.com.